going to continue in the book of Philippians in chapter 4. Um, I'm just going to read the passage and then we'll get started. I'm going to cut my introduction short because someone went long. So, just kidding. So, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. I'm going to read 10 through 20, but we're going to focus on 10 through 13 in the sermon. But to give you guys a bigger context, I'm just going to read the whole big section. Chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Now at length, you have received, you have revived your concern for me. Yes, you, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to, to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek to get, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Now that I receive full payment and more, I am well supplied. Having received the gift from Aphrodite, the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, Jesus, thank you for the space for us to gather here today. Thank you for your word. I pray that uh, you convict us, you change our hearts and minds to become more like yours, Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen. So I read that whole big passage, but I'm just going to focus on three verses, verses 10, 11, 12, 13, four verses, but hi, Allie. So verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly now at length that you have revived your concern for me. So you see that phrase again, last time I was up here talking about rejoicing in the Lord. Paul is always rejoicing. His baseline is love. And the baseline of the Philippians here is love. I love that phrase that they revived the concern for me, but they had no opportunity. Like they were ready to love Paul, even though they didn't have an opportunity. Like their baseline was love. Like they were ready to love Paul at a moment's notice. I had this image of an of a athlete. Like when, you're, when you're playing sports, like you're always on your toes. You're always ready to go left, right, up, down. When you're in a play, when you're doing a performance, you're always ready for the stage to break or for someone for, to forget their lines to do improv. Like, you're just always ready. Like, the Philippians were always ready to love. Their baseline was love. So when Paul needed to be loved, they were ready. They revived that love for him. And us as Christians, like, we need to love. Like, we're commanded to love. The Philippians were able to love Paul because they loved God. Like, they had their up and their in always together. You cannot separate love of God away from love of brother and sister. You can't just have loving brother and sister and not love God. You can't love God and not love brother and sister. Those two are always, always together. And the um, first John, John talks about this a lot. Um, just jumping around in first John chapter four, um, it says this, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, 
he is a liar, for he indeed does not love his brother, whom he cannot see, he cannot see. For he does not love his brother, from whom has seen cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Like for us to love each other, we have to love God. For us to love God, we have to love each other. You cannot separate you cannot separate the two. And that word concern there, that's the word Paul uses throughout the entire letter. It's like this mindset of Christian love and Christian hospitality. Like we're always supposed to be concerned for each other. Like we need to love each other. We need to love each other. And the best way to to love each other, and I know it's it's life gets crazy sometimes, but just I was I was thinking even about this this morning. Like, it's really hard to love each other. It's really hard to care for each other when you're not spending time with each other, when you're not engaged in, in each other's lives. And I, would just think, I was thinking about this, and this is, this is so true. It's harder to love people when you don't see them. And that's why it's so important that we come together at church. That's why it's so important that we come together in small groups. I think everyone kind of goes through a phase, um, either college, mi middle age, where like, oh, I'm not motivated to come to church. Oh, I don't want to be engaged in the community. And I know I went through this phase in my life of when I was like in college. I was like, oh, I'm not really feeling loved by the church right now. I'm not feeling loved by people at church. But then I realized I wasn't actually going. And I think there was a correlation there. Well, how could people love me if I wasn't going to them? How can I love other people if I wasn't being engaging with them? You see how there's the both sides of that equation. I think the easiest thing we could do to love each other is just to show up here and worship together, be here together, sing together, listen to the word together. It's just the easiest thing we could do to love God and to love each other just by being here together, being committed here together. Moving on to verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I'm to be content, no matter what situation, to be content. And I know that's easier said than done. I know you guys pretty much, I think everyone knows my life situation. You know, we're moving in a couple months. We're trying to pack, and but not pack, because we still need Tupperware all at the same time, transitioning into a new job. Like, like right now, I am not very content. I'm, I'm content every other hour. <laughs> I, am, I am content. So I know this is easier, this is easier said than done. But what's interesting about this word content is that back then, the best quality a wise person would have would be self-sufficiency. That if someone is like, if you think of like that, old, that picture in your head of like an old wise man, the best characteristic of someone who is wise is that they are self-sufficient. But for Paul, again and again, he's not saying that he's self-sufficient because he has God. He knows he can't do it all by himself. He has God's sufficiency, not self-sufficiency. He has God's sufficiency, not self-sufficiency. And Paul talks about that earlier on in Philippians in chapter 3. But whatever I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes to the faith in, 
faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Like God, Paul knows like his worth, his value, his identity is not found in himself. It's found in God. It's found in God. Uh, Bruce, the next thing is uh, that Galatians passage, right? Yeah, in Galatians, Paul says like he's been crucified with Christ. Like the old Paul is done with. He's no longer himself. He's now an ambassador of Christ. He's now living for Christ. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in Paul. Elsewhere in Second uh, Corinthians, he's, he, Paul says that he's a new creation, that if you're in Christ, that if you're a Christian, that you're a brand new person. You're a brand new creation. Like the old has passed away, newness has come. And earlier in Corinthians, he says, like, with that new identity, we're all being transformed and to become more like Jesus one step at a time. Or I think the passage says one degree at a time. And I like that, that image of becoming more like Jesus one degree at a time or even one step at a time. And I think that's hard for us to understand because that's, I feel like that's where us Christians get super judgmental. <laughs> at each other, or at least that's where I get super judgmental at people, because everyone's slowly becoming like Jesus. Some of us, if Jesus is over there, some of us are taking steps like this. Some of us may be going through times of life where we're taking big steps. And I know uh, there are times where, where, let's just say, if I'm taking big steps, sometimes I get judgmental of people who are maybe are taking little steps. But then I think back to my life, I'm like, oh, you know what? There have been times in my life where I've been taking little steps. And other people have been taking big steps to become more like Jesus. But here's the big thing. The biggest thing is we're still going that way. We're still becoming more like Jesus. Who really cares if it's little steps or if it's big steps or if it's leaps? All of us, because of our new identity in Christ, are taking steps towards Jesus. Who cares if they're big or if they're small? The focus is that we're going towards Jesus. We're becoming more like Jesus. And as long as you're doing that, as long as you keep going forward, it's okay. It's no big deal. And that's how you can be content because you have this new identity in Christ that you're becoming more and more like Jesus, that it's God who is sufficient in your life, not your own strength. Verse 12. And Paul gives examples of this. Like he knows this. He knows, as it says in verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He has firsthand experience on the highs and lows of life. He knows what it's like to be having good days and bad days. And again, that, that word secret, um, that was a phrase used by religious groups back then. And if you had like a mystical experience with your, you know, lowercase g god or if you have some like magical like revelation like you say oh i got a secret from from this from this false god oh i got a secret into life like that was the phrase that they used but we our god jesus isn't secret jesus did everything god does everything very publicly jesus was publicly born he publicly walked around he publicly did miracles privately too but Jesus did things out in the open. He didn't do anything in secret. He died very publicly. The most accurate thing about ancient history is that Jesus died by crucifixion. 
It was public. Jesus publicly rose from the dead. Jesus publicly showed himself to over 500 people at one time. Everything was public with Jesus. It's not secret. Paul's secret is that he believed in the very public, out there God, a very out there and public Jesus. God isn't secret. He's out there. He's with us no matter what. And so he's been, he's content. He's brought high. He's brought low. The secret is that he can do all things through Christ, through him, who gives him strength. Again, the contentness, the secret is that Jesus is always with us. He is always for us. He's always slowly changing us to become more like him. Like without Christ, we can't do anything. Bruce, if you go to that next slide that says Jesus vent, like we can't really do anything without Jesus. Like right now, Jesus is upholding the universe by the power of his word. Like if it wasn't for Jesus, we have no real reason why we think the laws of physics will work, why the universe would keep spinning the way they do, why gravity will always work. It's because God upholds everything by the power of his word. We know that the future will be like the past because God upholds the laws of science and physics. Like we can't do anything without, without Christ. That the universe is made by Christ and for Christ, and you were made by Christ and for Christ. Like you are not just an accidental collection of atoms, randomly come together over billions of years, and then you just somehow are here. No, you're made in the image of God. You're made for God and by God to worship God. Your life actually has a purpose, and the purpose is for to worship and glorify and honor Jesus. Through Jesus' strength, that you, you have the own ability to love him. You have the ability to love others. Through your own weaknesses, you actually show God's power because you're showing people, hey, it's not about me. It's all about him. So even through your own weaknesses, you're showing God's strength and power. It's through God's strength that you're able to endure and have patience and have strength to actually serve him. Like all these things we can't do. That's just a small list of things we can we can do all because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus we can do anything. And I know again that's that's easier said than done. But again, Paul knows what it was like to have good days and bad days. I know what it's like to have good days and bad days. Good mornings and bad afternoons. Good mornings, good afternoons and terrible evenings too. And the reason I think I know for me that when I have those those times where I'm going up and down, up and down, depending on what class I'm teaching, depending on what's going on, it's just because I forget who my God is. I forget how good he is to me, that I'm not resting and rejoicing always. And I know that's easier said than done, but with Paul, he wants us to know that our ultimate patron is Christ. And I know a patron, that's not a word that we use every day, but it's actually a really important concept in biblical times. Um, as I put this book away and get these other two, I actually packed these two and I had to like go find them. Um, I recently read these two books um, and they're really, really awesome. I'll probably post these on the Facebook page if anyone wants to buy them on Amazon. But this book is called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. Because we live in a Western society, we kind of miss some details about what it is living over there in the Middle East. And this book is the follow-up. It says, misreading scripture with individual eyes. 
like our culture right now, we live in a very individual society, not a very uh, collective or family structured society. And I know like when I read, when you read titles of these books, um, you can kind of get that mindset of like, oh, are these books going to tell me like Jesus wasn't real? Oh, he was actually like a Martian or the Bible is not true. There's plenty of those kind of books out there um, on the internet. Don't read them. Actually, read them if you want to, and then I can tell you why they're wrong. But these books just kind of doesn't tell you that the Bible is not true. Or it doesn't say, it doesn't teach you like, oh, Jesus didn't really mean this. It just kind of opens your eyes up to the bigger context. It, it explains things better. Um, it makes you understand things more. Not saying that it doesn't mean this or that. Um, and one of the things it talks about is this idea of a patron and a client. So back then, back in ancient times, if you had a debt, if you needed money, if you needed your car fixed, whatever, um, and you couldn't afford it, you had to go to someone, you had to go to someone to get their help. Usually someone upper in society, probably someone with more money than you, but you could go you know, across um, societal lines, someone same middle class as you or someone lower in class than you. Um, and you would ask them for, for help. You would ask them for money or for the extra tire or for your muffler, whatever you needed. Um, that person you go to for help would be your patron, the person you're going to for help. And then you would be their client. So I go to Dan for help. He's my patron. He helps me out. But those kind of loans, they were not impersonal. It wasn't like going to the bank oh, you give me money, we sign a contract. No, we are now personally invested in each other's lives. So he would be my patron, I would be his client. He would show me this Greek word, uh, charios, I think would be the Greek word. He would give me this gift and then I would reply and honor him with this word pistis. And then now I am showing him my loyalty and my trust. Now we have a relationship. This is a now a not just a, a you give me a check. No, no, now we're friends. Now we're like family, actually. Now he can count on me to help him out with stuff. And I can count on him to help me out with stuff. Like there's a, now there's a new relationship established. And that's just how things work. Like there was nothing was impersonal. A gift had a string attached. That's why when, you, when I read that longer passage, Paul kind of went back and forth. He was like, I love your gift, Philippians, but I don't need the gift, but I like it, but I don't need it. He, he was kind of going back and forth with the Philippians. Well, why? Well, if you remember, Paul's in jail right now. He knows if he accepted a gift from the Philippians, he was expected to be in relationship with them. But he knew, like, I can't be there for you relationally because I'm in jail. But you know who's always going to be in relationship with you? Jesus. God's always going to be in relationship with you. This gift that you're giving me is not just a gift to me, it's a gift to God. And God can always be the one that's going to be there for you. And if you're, th if you're thinking in your head right now, like, oh, well, like if Dan's helping me out with a gift, um, wouldn't you want to, like, then he might want to take advantage of me. Like, oh, yeah, I'm only going to help Scruff out if I, he, if I know he's going to help me back. And that did happen a lot. But like, oh, people giving favors, only if they knew that like this person could give them a favor back. But that's not what God does with us. And I think what's really cool is that when you translate these words into English, 
um, Bruce, if you want to go to the next slide real fast, the patron would give his grace. That's the word grace. And then the client will receive faith back, which gives, I think, whole new meaning to those terms grace and faith. That Dan, by, me, by helping me out, gives his grace, and then I receive back to him faith, my trust, my loyalty. And that's what God does with us. He gives us the gift of his son through grace, and we reply back with our faith, our trust, our loyalty. Um, and if you bear me with me, I think there's a section in the book here that describes this pretty well. Um, sorry that I don't have it on the, on the uh, slide here, but I think this is just awesome. But God is not like the patrons of the world who gives his patronage to people they think would prove to be worthy clients, those who will reciprocate by giving them honor and loyalty. He offers us grace from the life of his son. All people have not been worthy clients and do not deserve his favor. Rather, as ungrateful recipients of creation, they deserve his wrath. Yet God has responded generously by offering all people his patronage. He acted to benefit us so he could. Paul's using the ancient system to stress in ways ancient people really could understand that God gives us this gift on the basis of what he wants to benefit us because he can. That God, Paul, wants us to know that Jesus is his ultimate patron. God is our ultimate gift giver. He is the one that's always going to be there to support them, to give us every good gift. And just how when there's a relationship, there's a client-patron relationship, there's a new relationship status, that there's now a new relationship status between you and God, that now you're a part of God's family once you show God your loyalty and your trust, that when you see God's gift of grace as a gift, you show him loyalty, then you get all the benefits of being in a part of God's family too. Like that's why we can do all things through him because we're a part of his family. He gives us his grace. We can always rely on him. I mean, we can rely on each other because us together, we can rely on him. And that's what Paul wants us to do. We're not necessarily rely on each other, not necessarily rely on financial gifts, but rely on God, who's the ultimate gift giver. Gift giver. So let me pray real fast as Ben comes up. <coughs> Jesus, thank you that um, you give the gift of your son uh, to us, that you took away our biggest problem, which was sin, by dying on the cross. And you took away our sin by destroying it, by rising from the dead. And you offer us life and life to the full as a gift. And Father, with that, you offer us your grace. And then we are supposed to reply in loyalty and trust in the terms of faith, God. And I just pray that we just keep having faith in you, that everyone puts their loyalty and their trust in you because you're a good father who gives us good gifts, who give us the ultimate gift of your son on the cross, even though we don't deserve it. And I pray that we meditate on that and we rejoice in that and we are content in that no matter what. Amen.